You're listening to Oxide Film, written and directed by Matty O'Donovan and Tom Sayre. Hello and a very warm welcome to Oxide Film. We have yet another extremely special episode for you Bonus guys. episode. Another bonus redux Woo! episode, whatever we're you want to call it. We're full of them this term, aren't we? It's been an incredible term and we're not going to stop soon. We're going to have hopefully Mark Jenkins from Bait fame very soon on the show. But yeah. today we had the enormous pleasure of talking with part of the team behind Lessons from the Screenplay, the amazing YouTube channel with over a million subscribers. We don't need to tell... Like we don't need to plug them. They're, they've already got enough, They're but, but just go check it out anyway. So we had a chat with Michael Tucker and Alex Cadieros, who are both part of the team. Michael is the guy who does a lot of the legwork behind the episodes for the YouTube channel and does the voiceover and all that stuff. And Alex is the editor. Exactly. And they've got a couple of other guys, Brian Bittner and Trisha Arand. And also Vince, shout out to Vince, the public relations mastermind who I had a chat with on Facebook to get this all sorted. Lessons from the Screenplay has been going for a few years now, and they've also launched a podcast that celebrated its year anniversary Beyond this month. Beyond the Screenplay. Beyond the Screenplay. Yep. In space. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing podcast that also focuses on the screenplay side of movies and the screenwriting part of movies and why films are successful because of good screenwriting. And it's such a pleasure to hear good conversation and compact, intelligent chats about looking at a side of film that maybe isn't as, as explored as much because people t- tend to like you know, exploring acting side of things or directing, but the writing is as crucial, it's if not more it's crucial. It's imperative to a great film, isn't it? Their, their entire motto is never underestimate the screenwriter from their very first episode Definitely. of Gone Girl. And it's such a privilege to talk to people who are as informed about their screenwriting process as they are. We really, really hope you enjoy this special additional episode of Oxide Film. And as you said, Tom, we don't plan on stopping. Live with Michael and Alex very, very soon. Keep listening. joined by Michael Tucker and Alex Cayeros. Michael and Alex, thank you so much for joining us here on Oxide Film. Yeah, thank you for having us. That's okay. We'll launch straight into things and start with a kind of introduction for our listeners. For those of people who might not know, do you want to give us a history about Lessons from the Screenplay, the YouTube channel, and Beyond the Screenplay, your podcast, how you guys got involved with it, how you started it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Lessons from the Screenplay uh, is a YouTube channel that I launched in either May or June of 2016. And it's a, a video essay channel where we make videos analyzing the screenplays of different films and kind of look at the different storytelling techniques that they use to give an experience to the audience, tell their stories. Um, And so that launched in 2016, like I said, and kind of exploded overnight, which was really exciting. Um, And so over the years since then, I've kind of brought on uh, people to help and created this team. And uh, one of the team members is my good friend, Alex Cayos, who's here. <laughs> and uh, so after a couple of years of working on it, the team, you know, it was kind of like we were hanging out one day and just talking about movies and kind of realized like, this is really fun to just sit and talk about movies in depth. And on the channel, we don't really get a chance to talk about all aspects of the films. You know, usually each video is very focused on a certain thing. And so we were sitting around and, and chatting and someone brought up the idea of, I think this could be a podcast. 
and so we tried it out uh, at first for the the patrons of Lessons from the Screenplay, and the reception was very positive. And so we launched uh, Beyond the Screenplay February of last year. So we just had our one-year anniversary of the podcast. And so, yeah, so the, the podcast is the Lessons from the Screenplay team, myself, Alex, Brian Bittner, and Trisha Arand, who are two of the writers that we work with. And we kind of do deeper dives into the films that we talk about on the channel and other films that are coming out. So, so do you find that the members of your team have different genre tastes when it comes to film or do you all tend to kind of reach a consensus? I, I think we usually have some overlap of like genres that we enjoy. Um, but, but I think what makes the podcast fun and I think what's been great about having a team working on Lessons from the Screenplay is that we do all kind of have different uh, interests and come at things in, in different ways. Yeah, I think I think it's one of the things that makes our little group work, the four of us on Lessons from the Screenplay and on the podcast, is that we do have some overlap and we all can appreciate like a just objectively great film. But there's definitely certain movies that, for example, I'll go see and I'll be obsessed with because you know, I'm, I'm kind of a director first and foremost. And there'll be just kind of style choices or cinematography or music choices that blow me away and that wins me over. Whereas Trisha is like a writer through and through. And so if that movie failed to have a cohesive theme or like, you know, didn't live up to our expectations of what a good screenplay needs to do, that is like a, you know, no go for her. So there's, there's some fun uh, debates we can have on the show because we have different metrics for kind of what makes a great movie. Are there any films then, therefore, that are, have proven quite divisive amongst you? Um, things in which you have quite differing opinions on? Well, there, there's Annihilation. That was one that we, uh, it's, a, it's a patron-only episode because we got, it was kind of a divisive movie between our group. Yeah, yeah, there have only been a, a handful of movies, I think, that are, and like, I think what's, what is nice about the team is that even when we don't agree, we can still respect other people's opinions and respect, like, the things that they see in a film that they appreciate. So that's what we try to, we want that to kind of be the tone of the podcast is, like, respectful disagreement even when there's disagreement. Right, not doing the internet thing where it's like, you're a bad person for liking this movie. You're you're you are objectively wrong and here's why you're wrong. But more, you know, here's my argument for why I appreciate and think this movie did something well. And here's my counter argument for why it failed. You know, and it's not we're trying to keep it in this kind of more academic space and not the let's trash each other internet space. And it right. certainly makes for a good podcast, I think. Yeah. I, I have to say something <laughs> myself. I mean I, I gotta say I'm a pretty firm fan of annihilation. It it, it is a very mixed bag. Um, but I feel like there's one incredible movie in there and one pretty middling movie. And they both kind of fight for attention <laughs> yes. but pretty much Absolutely. near the end as well. Yeah. And yeah. On, on the back of that, as Annihilation is a movie that has like incredible story ideas and Alex Garland doing an, another amazing job of trying to bring in what we are most scared of about alien things. Is there one aspect of screenwriting that you can see across the board for movies as completely essential to making a good movie we've got films that have got trashy dialogue but can still have pretty interesting coherent plots at the center of them is there one kind of thing that you think is the most important thing it's hard to say like universally that there is one thing i am always a, a big proponent of structure and i think having a very strong uh, story structure is 
what makes a, a story a story. Um, so I would say if I was going to pick something, it would be that. Um, but I feel like at the same time, there are movies that purposefully don't follow structure and can react against it. And that is sometimes what makes them special. So I, I feel like that's kind of what's great about movies is there there is this foundational yeah, structure of, of what a story is, but also no movie does it 100% perfect. Each one kind of has its own take or breaks the rules. Um, but I would say usually it's harder for dialogue to make a poorly structured movie better, whereas like you can have a, a poorly executed movie that still feels like a movie as long as it's following some kind of organic structure. Well, I think when I think about when I go to see a movie, what kind of makes it a bare minimum success? <laughs> and and often it, it I think it is a result of structure because it's taken me on an emotional journey where I can't help but feel some catharsis by the end. And I think that's what I go to movies for is to feel that sense of release, that sense of catharsis uh, of being overwhelmed and uh, just having an experience. And I don't think you can really achieve that without some sort of archetypal structure undergirding everything. If it's just kind of flat and relying on clever, witty dialogue, I'm not going to have that catharsis experience, most likely. Um, and we, we talked about with like Before Sunset, which seems like a movie that is just two people talking for an hour and a half, but it actually has a really good dynamic structure underneath the conversation, which gives you that catharsis. So yeah, I'm kind of with Michael on that. So do, do you find then that the best films in terms of structure are the ones in which it's quite hard to identify the structure, but you still enjoy it? I, I definitely love when a movie is interesting enough that I'm not like, because you can see, you'll see like a Marvel movie or, or kind of these more paint by numbers films. And it's like, oh yeah, they're doing the right thing at the right time. And that's, you know, they did it. But then there's films where you're just swept away by it and you're not really sure where you are, but the emotional experience that you've had by the end like is that archetypal story experience um, that I, I am very impressed by that. Yeah. I, I feel like that's kind of my marker of when I love a movie is when I'm completely swept up in it and I don't have my analytical brain on being like, Oh, that was the inciting incident. No, here we're rolling through the midpoint now. Um, and I, I feel like it's, the, the movies that usually do that to me have the most organic structure. And I, I think that's the challenge with structure is there's the bad way to use it, which is on page 10, this thing needs to happen. Or on page 44, the bad guys close in. And if you're writing a story and you just flip to that page and write, and then the bad guys come, that doesn't automatically mean it's a good story, that it's a good structure. Ideally, the structure has to be, feel uh, organic and inevitable and just one thing flows into the other and there's a very clear cause and effect and I think that's when a film is really working is when from the first frame of the film to the end it all feels like a natural logical but emotional progression of the things that kind of happens to hit all these structural beats it, that's why it, it feels like magic when I see a really great movie because it's like how did you do this how did you get it so that these characters all their motivations always make perfect sense and it always is a there's a causality through everything and yet it's somehow managing at the same time to hit these like preordained 
structure beats um, without feeling like it's doing it just to do it. Uh, that's really impressive screenwriting to me. Yeah, I guess speaking of structure, the things, the one thing that most people would be the most aware of is that whole three act thing, right? You've got the first act setting up, the second act bringing in a new problem for the character, and the third act, the finale, the cathartic moment for most movies. I've got to say for myself, I never really see that in films. I never see, oh, okay, we're moving into the second act. It doesn't really seem to me like a way of describing films organically, as you said, Michael, before. Do you think that kind of three-act thing is is something that movies just attach onto really easily? Is it is that something that part of the movie medium just kind of works with so well? Uh, I mean, I think, I think the the question is almost like is like our stories just naturally uh, do they just kind of take that form if it's a good story? And and one of one of the structural models I like a lot is Dan Harmon's story circle, which is kind of his simplification of uh, Joseph Campbell's hero with thousand with a thousand faces, you know, story arc archetypal, all those things. Um, but he, he, Dan Harmon kind of explains it in very simple terms that I, that I think make it easier to resonate, which is kind of, you know, humans and the history of storytelling. It It is about, usually it's focused on, you know, a, a character who has to, there's a problem at hand and they need to go solve the problem. So inevitably, if you're telling a story, there's going to be a moment where the, we learn what the problem is and then that character ventures forth to solve that problem. And so that's kind of naturally going from a first act to a second act. And if it's a compelling story, they're going to struggle. And so that's, you know, you're going to have the ups and downs that kind of naturally map onto um, the the beats that are usually found in the second act. And then there's usually some kind of resolution where they're returning home, either literally or metaphorically or whatever it is that kind of naturally map onto um, a third act. So the, I think what, what I've come to appreciate is that that's just kind of how our brains are wired to receive stories is in this, there's a problem, someone had to go try to fix it, but then something surprising happened. And then in the end, X, Y, or Z happened. And so I think that's, there's just kind of naturally that, that circle and that cycle to it. And so you can break it down into three acts, you can break it into five acts, you can have eight sequences, you can, as many things as you want, you can split it, split it up like that. But I think that's kind of what we're wired either genetically or maybe just culturally to, to expect a story to be is to follow that, that uh, flow. Yeah, one thing that I find a little maddening sometimes is when you realize if you try hard enough, you really can kind of squeeze any story into any <laughs> structure. If, if it can be a stretch, but it's like, oh yeah, but this is the you know this is the five act version of this, or this is the eight sequence version, or the three act whatever. But I do think there are some key those deeper Joseph Campbell archetypal things that I, I once again I think are, are the reason that I feel a catharsis in a movie. And one thing that we've identified a lot. Uh, just talking Michael and I about story structure is how important the midpoint is. I really think I've come to really appreciate the midpoint as maybe the most important beat of a film because that's usually in, in a really great film where things just turn on their head and you really don't know what to expect in the second half of this movie. I think films where I start to tune out are ones where you know, there's kind of a 
predictability all the way through. But I think a great, you know, Dark Knight's a really good example of just the midpoint, I think, is essentially where uh, they like catch the Joker, but then like everything blows up and, you know, Rachel dies and uh, everything's kind of turned on its head in the moment of supposed victory. And I think those are the films where you're just, I don't know what's going to happen now because the impossible has happened and how are they going to deal with this? And uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, building a great midpoint into your film is maybe more important than even a great inciting incident. And and another thing that I, on top of the midpoint that I've come to really focus on is the idea of characters having to sacrifice to get the thing that they want. Because I think, again, archetypally, stories are are there to teach us life lessons. They're like, you know, instructions on how to live ideally. And so you're kind of watching someone go through this horrible experience that you would probably never want to go through, but they are growing and through their growth, you learn this important lesson. And so I think I've, I've also found that movies where the protagonist has to sacrifice something or someone um, that's, that you that you really feel that sacrifice and you're made to care as much as the protagonist cares those are the movies that i think really resonate with me and have the emotional power and earn the lesson that they arrive at at the end of the film so you mentioned campbell there and in the past in both videos and i imagine in your podcast you've spoken about other writers such as john york and his book into the woods and that kind of has those um references to the sacrifice of characters um do you find that you're scrutinizing new literature on storytelling or you're finding sort of new resources that might help you in your videos and your podcast to understand structure even better or do you think that it's quite like a stasis at the moment most of the scholarship is 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 the same as it has been for maybe the last couple decades um for the first year and a half i would say i was looking kind of constantly for new books on storytelling and that's kind of how i arrived at into the woods by john york like you mentioned and another book i like a lot creating character arcs by k.m wyland um but but i do think that a most books on storytelling are kind of all saying the same thing just in their own way and I think that you can either roll your eyes at that or what I've kind of come to feel is that it's, I think it's useful to read them all because the way certain people phrase the thing will make it resonate with you more than somebody else. So I think, you know, when I was, when Alex and I were back in film school, we were assigned, you know, a story by what's his name, Robert McKee and like save the cat and all these things. And I was very resistant to them because I would read one of them and be like, Oh, I guess this is kind of interesting, but most of this I don't like. But once I sat down and read all of them, it, it let me appreciate the core thing that they were all talking about because within each different writer's voice, there was something that clicked for me and made me get it and appreciate the deeper lesson that was going on. Um, so, so yeah, I feel like probably in the last 20, 30 years, most of the books on writing have been getting at the same things, but I think it's still worth exploring them all to see which ones resonate with you. And one of the reasons I like, you know, Into the Woods um, is that it gets into the psychology of storytelling more. And I think that is a thing that is kind of um, still evolving and kind of a new thing is, you know, so many screenwriting books say on this page, do this thing and never explain why, or say like every story needs an inciting incident or choice reveals character, but never explains why. And so I'm appreciating 
new books and new entries that try to get at, you know, kind of Mary's storytelling with human psychology. So we understand this is why we respond to this thing. Don't just do it willy nilly, but do it because this is the emotional response that humans can have when this kind of thing happens. Yeah, I think to take the kind of textual grounding of movies in a different direction. Recently on our show, we've talked a bit about Robert Eggers' two movies, The Witch from 2015 and The Lighthouse from 2019. And they're both films that have a real grounding in what Eggers himself read up for making those films. Is there something that you see as important in, for example, Eggers' process from moving from journals to the screen in terms of getting these stories and kind of rolling them up into a massive elastic band ball is what I see The Lighthouse to be, for example, and making that into a movie. Is there something that you can see in that process that makes it successful? Um, I mean, it's, it's tough because I haven't read a whole lot about Eggers' process, but I do know what you're re- referencing, that he he uses like direct quotes from actual journals from these periods, uh, you know, the actual lighthouse keepers' records of their experiences. I think, I mean, I think ultimately, I mean, I love The Lighthouse, and that's an example of a film where there's not a really a clear apparent structure on the surface, except for maybe, you know, there are some key turning points. Uh, there's reversals, you know, when he kills the seagull, uh, you know, them arriving at the lighthouse is, is like the inciting incident. So you can still map some story beats onto that, but I think what films like The Lighthouse do so well is uh, escalation. And really that sense of uh, a movie kind of gripping you and not letting you go. I think there's kind of these, there, you can look at movies that, from that more like big picture, archetypal Joseph Campbell, hero's journey level, or you can just look, look at a movie scene by scene. And why am I still so compelled by this film, even though I maybe don't even know what's going on, you know, in, in a logical way. And I think uh, that's where it really comes down to just like scene by scene, this film is escalating the stakes. It's escalating the conflict. It's uh, you know, it's not letting you relax because things are kind of flattening out or um, getting easier for the protagonist. It's things are ramping up constantly to this. You know, in the lighthouse, it's like a to a fever pitch by the end. Um, and and so I think in some ways, Robert Eggers is really good at just taking uh, really rich source material and these really interesting settings and time periods and situations and then just kind of make it into a fever dream that that does not let you go it does not let you relax or kind of get bored it just it keeps escalating the conflicts as much as possible until it explodes (laughs) uh so that's that's what i gather from from the lighthouse and the kind of lesson i got from it so so this interview is very fortuitous because of course we've just had the oscars um, and both Tom and I have been really happy about Bon Joon Ho's uh, success with Parasite. Just in relation to that and sort of other um, award successes such as Taika Waititi getting the best adapted screenplay um, for Jojo Rabbit, do you are you sort of happy with how screenwriting is being represented in award shows? I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to see on that kind of platform in terms of awareness for screenwriting and its recognition? Uh, well, I will say that I was also very excited that both of them won for screenwriting. I was I was very happy with the, the screenwriting awards this year. Um, you know, it's as far as how they're being represented and presented, I I feel like I almost don't ex- 
expect anything more. Like I, I feel like most people don't think about screenwriting when they think about movies. Like I think there's, there's slowly a, a growing awareness of it. Um, but I think for most moviegoers, they shouldn't be thinking about screenwriting. Like I, I think it's almost like the score in a film or the cinematography. Like most people, they just want to sit down and watch a movie and be swept away into this other world. And the more you know about how it's made, the harder it is to to make that happen. Um, but it, I do think for people that are interested in film, uh, learning more about you know, the importance of screenwriting is, is critical. And that's obviously partially why I created lessons from the screenplay. Um, and so I don't know that it's the Oscars job to do that, but I, I do think there's value in kind of generally raising awareness amongst film goers of like how to appreciate a well-told story, because I think the more we demand well-written films, the more we'll get well-written films and studios will, spend more time on the script part of things hopefully ideally um so that's that's kind of my general thought on all of that uh, I mean, i'll just add to the award season thing I, I i i think my only beef with the whole idea of award season is that it's also political and there's also these campaigns associated with <laughs> the whole process all the way from the nominees to the winners and so there's plenty of movies last year that I loved that I thought had amazing writing, but they just didn't fall into the awards category. So I think that's the only limitation that I see on these awards shows is that there's amazing screen, screenwriting happening across genre. Uh, you know, some horror movies like Midsummer. I loved a lot of the dialogue in Midsummer. I thought that was brilliantly uh, showing like a modern horrible relationship at the core of that movie uh and and some of the dialogue was so painfully accurate i had never seen a movie do it that well but that's just that was not considered uh, you know an academy movie so that's my only problem with it is just the limitations around the politics of who's who's campaigning for this like political office basically yeah i i feel like you know, I grew up in Northern California and moved to LA in 2010. And I think move, like living in LA, you come to really understand like how political of a process it is. All the billboards, all the bus stops, everything is like for your consideration ads. It's crazy. Yeah. And so you, you just, you understand that it's, it's not necessarily, this is the best one of this year. This is what some people decided of the small pool of films that had enough money to campaign to be nominated. Marriage Story was all over LA. Netflix was like, give us Oscars. You know, they had like a special poster for Laura Dern, a special poster for Alan Alda. Like, it was crazy. <laughs> so are you therefore skeptical of the Oscars in particular? Or do you find that um, award ceremonies might limit people's reception to films that, as you mentioned, um, might have excellent screenwriting, but not the resources for the exposure necessary to get out there. I mean, I I do still actually appreciate that we have award season because it does encourage uh, a certain type of like mid-budget movie to still get made. Uh, you know, I don't think we would have had some of the movies we had this year if not for award season. Uh, so I think I, I think it's still a good thing overall. And it's more just kind of a pet peeve that, uh, depending on what genre you're working in or depending on what time of the year your movie comes out, 
you're not considered in the running for these kind of arbitrary reasons. But overall, I think the uh, incentive to create quote-unquote Oscar movies is overall a good thing because otherwise we might not have some of these films. And it lets us, yeah, have a, a time of year that we we kind of collectively think critically about films and, and uh, you know, what they can be. And I, I feel like the Oscars is also almost just like propaganda, but like like useful propaganda. Like this is, like movies are magic. Like it's remember, yeah. yeah. So I I kind of view them as that, as a reminder of what, the magic of film can be and sometimes the things that win are very frustrating and other times like this year they're actually like very satisfying parasite was one of my most interesting awesome film experiences of the year and it won all the awards so that great you know that i'm very happy moving perhaps as far away from the oscars as is humanely possible to do what do you guys think about what's called paracinema or so bad it's good <laughs> kind of movies is there is there a kind of narrative reason why things like the room or showgirls or cats or, or, or even cats indeed <laughs> like can have that weird demonic appeal is there something to do with screenplay that means that these things are still appealing even though so many aspects of them are utterly terrible well so i've i have a complicated relationship with with these kinds of films generally i do not enjoy watching them i do not find them fun like it's not a pleasant experience um i at one point i started writing a video about the room because i was fascinated by exactly that question like why what is it about these films that are so bad they become good like that's just a really interesting thing to investigate and I didn't make it super far because it became clear I wasn't going to arrive at the answer. But it seems like there is something that is showing a... Like when someone watches The Room and a scene is bad and people laugh, I feel like that's signaling that people have in their bones kind of unconsciously even, like they know what a good scene is supposed to be. And I think that so many people that aren't super into film can watch these films and and react that way speaks to, you know, that film is a language. And even if you can't speak it, if you're not a filmmaker, you still know how to read it. And I think bad films kind of bring that to light in an interesting way. So unlike Michael, I love movies that are so bad they're good i mean that's i i used to have screenings of the room and also uh have you seen troll 2 and i think i yeah i think michael's getting at something there where what's so enjoyable about these movies for me is that they're they're only they're only so bad they're good when they're really trying like when they're earnestly going for it and just failing so hard because you know in the room you can tell you can identify that like he thinks this is a good movie and he thinks this is like what drama is and this is what like a a great love story is <laughs> but it's just falling it's just falling failing at every level <laughs> um and it's just there's something just because we know what it's supposed to be and how it's just utterly failing in the most like spectacular way it there's a pleasure in that <laughs> I, yeah, like I feel like that's that is an important part is that you can identify that they have the right the thing that they're aiming for is the right thing, 
and they're just missing it horribly. And I think that's why it's so hard for me to watch because I get like, I get empathy embarrassed. Like I can't watch figure skating, like Olympic figure skating. Cause every time they go up to do like a triple axel, I'm just, I'm so stressed that they're going to fall. Cause when they fall, I feel it. And it's just the most painful thing, but it's because you know that what they're trying to do is great, but there's when they miss it, it's super painful. And so for me, that's, I think why bad movies like that are painful. So, so off the back of that, do you do you sometimes think as well that like actors and producers in these films, once they're aware they're developing this sort of cult following as a terrible film to watch, they kind of lean into it more, thus proliferating the opinion that they're bad. So uh, going back to the room, Tommy Wiseau does frequent screenings. And at this point, he must be fully aware that people don't think the film is good, but he still leans into it nevertheless. It kind of just makes me sad <laughs> after a while, but um, I mean, good on good on him. I mean, he's he's made it into a success for himself. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like you can't really expect people to do any anything else, but yeah, either lean into it or like distance themselves completely. But it's it's probably more fun and like healthy for them to just like be part of the joke. But then also once they're a certain level of being in on the joke, it's not fun anymore. I don't know. There's a lot of complicated psychology, I think, happening there. I guess people do forget that Tommy Wiseau is a billionaire from Mars, so you can never really make a human movie in the first place. Um, But (laughs) moving on from Paris Cinema and talking about your video that you were trying to make on The Room but couldn't end up making it, do you ever end up releasing a video on YouTube or, or start preparing with one that you kind of aren't proud of or you feel like you could there's something that you're missing or, or do you are you always happy with the finished product um yeah saying i'm always happy with it is like a complicated statement i feel we're, like we're all perfectionists here i guess <laughs> yeah. so yeah yeah that's the key word perfectionist it, it right. just as somebody who's a member of the team <laughs> I'll just say that um, there's a pretty rigorous process that the videos go through before they go out the door, you know, all the way from writing the script for the videos to the edit, you know, Michael kind of has like a final pass and everything, including the graphics. um, And that can get right down to the wire because he is a total perfectionist. You know, we all are. And, but yeah, I, I think Michael does not like to release things that haven't gotten to a certain level of polish. Yeah. So yeah, we we've definitely scrapped several videos because I felt like we weren't cracking it or you know, the angle we were taking didn't feel like it was paying off or like providing the level of value that I'd I'd want from a video. So yeah, so luckily we have enough flexibility and freedom that I I'd never feel pressured to release a video that's subpar. Um, so I feel like there's always a certain threshold of quality that we're able to hit. And sometimes I'm less perfectionist freaking out than others about the releases. In your podcast, then, um, you recently did an excellent episode on Logan. Of course, that came out a couple years ago. Are you kind of aiming for things that you think are narratively more interesting over things that are more topical? Because I know you did those um, episodes on the Star Wars trilogy around the time of Rise of Skywalker. Or is it a kind of balance that you try and find between content that is in relation to films that people are seeing now and stuff that you really want to focus on but maybe might not fit the video format? Yeah, I think we're aiming for a balance. I think we appreciate film of all different kinds. Like it's fun to talk about Star Wars and the prequels, but it's also fun to talk about, you know, we're doing some very filmy movies coming up and stuff. So I, I think it's 
it's fun and valuable to shine the analytical lens on um, all kinds of films because I think every every film has a lesson to be uh, learned from, and, and so I think it's we try to keep it, you know, mix it up as much as possible. Yeah, I think I think it's just you know it's it's always fun to jump on the bandwagon of you know the new Star Wars movies coming out, so we're all going to be talking about this anyway. Let's just go for it. But I we I think like you mentioned, Michael earlier, part of what we kind of take as like a reason to make a video is can we find an actual lesson, you know, lesson in the screenplay that, uh, that, that you can take away as like part of your toolkit as a writer, you know, when we start writing a video and it seems like we're just kind of almost describing what's happening and just saying, Oh, isn't it cool that this director did this? That doesn't feel like a lesson. You know, we were trying to find in whatever movie we're covering, whether it's topical or not, a tool for your toolkit that you can walk away and apply to your own work. It's not just describing this one movie. What is the lesson you would derive, therefore, from something like Star Wars Rise of Skywalker? Ooh, that's on, on the spot. <laughs> if, if there's one at all, that that's partly why I asked the question. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, this is like a whole box of worms that you're, you're opening here. I, I would say that... Can of worms, mixing metaphors. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, box of worms. Who has boxes yeah, of worms? Box. Okay, worms. that's what happened. Um, I would say the way I try to engage with something like the rise of Skywalker is it's heavily, I, I take the context of the film very much into account because making that movie is not like making a normal movie and there are crazy pressures and we know kind of like lots of things that happened behind the scenes that made it you know not the ideal experience uh and so i for movies like that i tend to go into it with a lot of forgiveness uh and empathy empathy toward the filmmaker um and so for that film i was able to really enjoy it because i went in understanding this impossible task that had been handed to these people and that they were able to make something that was still able to give me joy and uh it felt like it was there was still love put into it um i really enjoyed it so that's kind of it's hard because that's not a, a super little yeah. right like unless you're making star wars episode nine i don't know that that's like a useful lesson um but that's kind of how i engage with those like super big films that have impossible expectations i mean some of the lessons i took from it maybe are more just like like editing because as an editor i found the first act of that movie to be so incredibly rushed to the degree of like almost disorientation <laughs> and and just you know it, it just felt like there could have been maybe a movie in here that felt more like a you know a pillar of the star wars saga that is like a you know a movie movie like a big epic finale and somewhere along the way a lot got crammed in a lot got shuffled around and it just felt like a kind of a mess um i also really enjoyed it because i had kind of given up on um Star Wars being what I wanted it to be anymore. So I just was down for a ride and I got a ride. But um, yeah, the lesson I took more from it, just because I don't even know where to begin with the screenplay stuff because of all the constraints around it and the complications of the previous two films. And I don't even know where to start with the screenplay. But 
from an editor's perspective, I think there could have been some easy fixes with the edit. But it, but it's also hard because I, I, I trust that the editors thought that this was the best version of the movie well, that they had to that they had to make. Well, no, exactly. Like I feel like that's why it's I don't find it super helpful to talk about all the things that it did wrong or, or that were not great because I, I don't think anyone tried to make it not good. I feel like they were again working with all these crazy constraints. And so like I don't know that the lessons you can extract Well, I mean the lesson could be like Disney shouldn't force them to make it a certain running time because it could have been better. But if Disney's not forcing you, then when you sit down to write, yeah, can of worms. <laughs> very, very big can of worms. Nine cans of worms. Um, but I mean, like the thing is about your channel and about your podcast, the thing I really respect is that the entire point of what you guys are doing is constructive. I mean, take something like Cinema Sins on YouTube that's been going for a long time, and it is, you've got to hand it to them, it is entertaining. It's a classic case of Shodan Void, I think. Is, yeah, is exactly. But like the, the point of that kind of content is it's not doing anything to benefit a film discussion. And the whole point of uh, LFCS, like lessons from the screenplay, is to try and give that construction. So that's why I think what you guys are doing is really good. Bringing it back to your channel and the podcast and the differences between the two. When you started Beyond the Screenplay, did you kind of see it as a very, very different project from what you guys are doing on YouTube? As you mentioned, the process of making a video is very painstaking for you, Michael, and very drawn out. And the podcast is much more, you know, a a very intelligent conversation between four people who love talking about movies. Did you kind of realize that that process was going to be really different from the very start? Yeah, I I think that's why podcasts had always intrigued me um it's just it is you know there's a lot less work (laughs) involved in making a podcast and so i think that's that was definitely part of the appeal of it um but i think what was also fun was kind of doing it together as a team like with lessons from the screenplay it was just me in my room basically for the, the first year like making it launching it evolving it um and so i think it was really fun to have this team in place and then together let's talk about what we want this to be and let's record a few episodes and see what naturally happens and kind of, you know, we do a kind of group feedback session after every episode. And so through doing that over and over again, kind of took shape um, and became what it was. So I think that's, that was the most fun part of, of developing the podcast was kind of together as a team organically arriving at something that we thought was valuable to other people and was super fun to make for us for sure and you mentioned uh previously that you both gained a lot of insights when you were at film school i was just curious if you didn't mind like outlining what your experience was there because you know there's a a lot of um i wouldn't say debate but uh questions as to whether or not you develop a unique style as a screenwriter through instruction from others, or if it's a case of trial and uh, error on your own behalf. Did you enjoy the experiences that you had when you were at film school, or do you feel like you learned more through, you know, building and growing the channel? Uh, well, I did, Alex and I had a ton of fun. Yeah, we, so we actually met in film school. We went to uh, UC Santa Cruz in Northern California, and uh, we, yeah, we just both majored in film and digital media in undergrad. And uh, our film school was very kind of wide open as far as the production concentration. We The way it worked was that the first couple of years you have to 
I do you know more film theory, critical theory classes, which is which has really you know fed lessons from the screenplay and kind of gave us that critical thinking background for film. But then in the production concentration, they really kind of let you loose just to do whatever you wanted. There was a lot of just you know here's access to some like brand new digital cameras and some brand new equipment and here's you know Final Cut Seven on the computers and uh, just go make some movies. So it, that was really fun because it was kind of just trial and error, but with uh, all the equipment provided. And so, you know, that's where Michael and I kind of, we got together and we were like, hey, we have similar taste. We both are crazy perfectionists. Uh, let's make movies together. And um, and so, yeah, I think the most valuable thing that that came out of film school for me was actually the the people, you know, the network of people that I grew close with make just making movies. And I did take a, I did take one screenwriting class that was really valuable in film school, but um, I would say more of what has shaped me has been just the trial and error, having fun with friends. Yeah, I, I think you need the balance of those things. And, and like Alex was saying, our film theory department was really good and made me look at film in a different way and kind of learn how to read film as text and all the more heady and, and like and like stay awake during like you know an hour and a half of a silent movie but with no like no sound whatsoever not even like a music track playing yeah like really like testing uh, the our willpower to like to stay with the movie yeah so yeah i, I feel like for me the film school forced me to learn things that i wouldn't have learned because i wouldn't have wanted to engage with those films or wouldn't have known how to do that engagement um and then also like alex was saying allowed for creative experimentation and the trial and error which is also critical and so i think it it's probably as far as and you know a lot of i know a lot of people are wondering like should i go to film school or should i not and a lot of people talk about youtube film school and you can learn tons of stuff online and that's that is true but like alex was saying there's there's something to being around other people that are also passionate about the same thing and for me it wasn't even just the the film school people that i met but i met lots of different people that were focused on science and computers and AI and all these things, but they also liked watching movies. And then their thoughts on movies were kind of different than, you know, the average art students thing. And so I think school exposes you to things that you wouldn't otherwise that can feed you and help you kind of develop your own voice as a creator. So yeah, I think it's definitely a a worthwhile experience. That sounds really positive. I mean, I would say that you guys with the YouTube channel and now your podcast as well have got quite a interesting outlook now. You've got two very different online discourse platforms for film. Do you think you're going to end up making a third, a different category? I mean, you've done lessons from the screenplay for quite a while now and you've understood what kind of things do well on YouTube. Have you felt the desire to go beyond that and also beyond beyond the screenplay if that makes sense and to <laughs> branch into new stuff with film I, I know you both like making films as well you're gonna start doing that more proactively in the future yeah so one of the reasons i kind of created this team to help make lessons from screenplay um was to free up some of my time so that i could get back to writing and directing <clears throat> and kind of get back to that learning by doing thing um so yeah, so Alex and I are definitely working on some scripts. We have movies that we want to be making soon. Um, so whether that 
ends up on YouTube or, you know, exactly the, the outlet for that. It's not quite clear yet, but that's absolutely a priority for us. Um, and, uh, and I've also been, I've always been fascinated by video games. I'm a big gamer and I think there's a lot of really interesting storytelling happening in the video game realm. Um, you know, last year, uh, we did a video on the last of us and interviewed the writer and creative director of that film or <laughs> that video game, Neil Druckmann. It is kind of a cross, you know, transmedia project. Yeah. And that was really, really fascinating. So that's another kind of uh, avenue we've been looking at is, you know, could it, could there be something to looking at the storytelling in video games and, and what, what lessons can you extract from that? So, yeah, I, I think as long as we enjoy creating and learning, we're going to try to find ways to you know, find, find new paths to create and learn and hopefully share that with people. I, I will say that, you know, it's, it's always, this is the eternal struggle of, you know, trying to uh, make money, but also uh, keep your creativity alive and um, make room for doing things that you're not paid to do. Uh, and uh, one thing I've realized is that I basically just need to like live a uh, a more regimented life where I go to bed early, I wake up super early and I just have reserved time in my day. Like no matter what, no matter what other editing gig I have or whatever job I'm working, I have an hour or two every single morning that before anything else in my day can interrupt me, I am going to work on a script or work on a creative project. And that's, you know, it's taken me a while to get to that point where I've just like accepted that's how it's got to be. Cause I always had these dreams of, oh, I'll just like take a month off and write a script real fast. That never happens. You know, you, I think it, just, it has to be almost like a lifestyle. Uh, so that's, we're both trying to practice that right now is, you know, can we have a more balanced life where work has its place and there's also a space for creativity every single day? That's really encouraging, and I hope you do find that balance increasingly. Um, just as a side <laughs> note to what you mentioned about being a big fan of video games, uh, Michael in particular, uh, how hyped are you for The Last of Us Part Two? Because I remember playing the first game, and I was already clamoring for the second one by the time I'd finished it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 pretty hyped. It, it was it was really fun getting to to talk to Neil because um, you know they're at the time the release date was just around the corner and then they ended up pushing it back a little bit. Um, but it was, yeah, he, he kind of made reference to some things that they were working on and I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really excited because they are so, so story focused at naughty dog and, and you can tell there's just so much passion and love for storytelling in him and in the team. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of going in with like, no expectations in some ways like I'm just open to like whatever you guys want to tell me like I'm here to listen and play through and um, yeah well I think I think the, the the wonderful thing about a game like Last of Us Part 2 is that you just know you're in good hands you know whatever experience whatever experience you're going to have is the experience they intended because they know what they're doing and um, so I'm I'm just excited to like you know sit back relax and be in the good hands the good hands of Naughty Dog. And and I kind of expect them to do things that are going to make me uncomfortable. Like, I think clearly right. if we well, we won't spoil the ending of The Last of Us, but I, I feel like that's also why I'm trying to go in with no expectations because... They're probably going to make me upset. Right. Yeah. I'm expecting to be surprised, <laughs> if that makes sense. It's really cool to see video games, you know, recently 
having this massive narrative push. Last of Us, the Uncharted series kind of coming to an end. A lot of these games that have you're interacting, even Fallen Order uh, as a good kind of proper mm-hmm. RPG game mm-hmm. as well, where you kind of get invested in the story, but you're still in control. And that's something that is very much different from movies. And people are kind of worried about whether that's going to overtake films. I don't think so at yeah. all. I think we're going to have yeah. to wrap things up, unfortunately, for this conversation. It's been so wonderful having you guys on. We just wanted to finish off by asking you something that we've asked our guests in recent times quite a lot in terms of we've moved into this new decade, 2020, and we're very much now there now that Oscars have happened and we're kind of like staunchly in the new decade. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Children of Men came out too early for this. Yeah. But I was going to ask you guys if you had a few top picks from the 2010s, <laughs> any movies that you got some very rich lessons from. Uh, it, it's funny that you asked that because later today we're recording an episode on, on all of... Uh, for Beyond the Screenplay, our top 10 films of the past decade. Amazing. Okay, Perfect well, timing. We'll have yeah. to do a bit of a cheeky, very short preview in case we spoil too much stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm still like actually trying to figure it out because it's it's I'm so bad at like choosing favorites and things. And again, like and ranking them, like how do you rank them? Yeah, like like you said, if Children of Men had come out a little bit later, like it could have been an easy pick. But uh, yeah, Alex, do you, do you want to do yours? Are, is it okay to give away what we're going to talk about? <laughs> Maybe do your second favorite. My second. Okay, here's here's what I currently have as number two, unless I change my mind before tonight. Um, I have Black Swan as my number two. And I think part of the reason for that is I was just trying to think back on what are films that I've watched over and over again and gotten more out of on each viewing. And also just when I first saw them in the theater, it reminded me of why I'm doing this. You know, that visceral, I am just in this movie. I cannot tear my eyes away. I am overwhelmed by cinema. Um, Black Swan was a film in the last decade that, that did that to me. And I just, I love just how bonkers it is and how, no, you know, hardcore it is. It's something just, yeah. Are you going to say Whiplash now, then, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> that that would be very fitting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I also this might end up being my number one. Who knows? I think I'm I'm gonna say uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, uh, the Fincher version, uh, the American version. Uh, I think because it came out at a, a really critical time I think for me it like I remember was sitting in the theater and it just reinvigorating my creative spirit and just like the way Fincher makes movies and just like shots of just like the back of people's heads I see and I'm like this is amazing like this is cinema uh (laughs) and just something about that film because it was this kind of murder mystery which I always really love but also it had these fascinating uh, main characters and I thought the performances of each of them were really interesting and I think it's my favorite Daniel Craig performance he's kind of this like cool but nerdy like ladies man but also like very like empathetic I don't know there there was just a lot in there that resonated with me and it felt it was one of those times where you go and see a movie and it feels like it was made for you kind of what does that say about you called <laughs> the dragon tattoo <laughs> No, those are both excellent choices, to be honest with you, um, and they're probably up there for at least me. I, I, I'm sure Tom's the same. I've um, got to say, I'm also a gigantic Fincher fan, yeah. Michael. I feel like we can definitely share and revel in that for a little bit. Here's, yeah. here's the way yeah. it does next. I mean, like, sad that he left the World War Z2 project, am I right? Yeah. That would have been an interesting movie. Yeah. 
Um, but listen, yeah. thank you guys so much for being on again. There's a, a great chance to plug the next episode of Beyond the Screenplay. We thoroughly recommend that all of our listeners check out Beyond the Screenplay. Definitely. It's been an incredible year for that podcast. And here's to many, many more years of seeing it grow and just learning more lessons from movies. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Michael thank and you. Alex. Cheers. Bye. And we'll catch you very soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to Oxide Film. Thank you and good night.